Listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and I'd like to thank you for joining us today. We're going to do something a little different from our usual here on the show. Um, in general, as you know, if you've been listening to us for the last few years, what we do on the Living Writers Show is we tend to interview literary writers about um, their work and about what it is that they think about their work and what they think about their writing life. But today we're going to more broadly define this notion of living writers and we're going to reach on out to the academic community and talk a little bit about academic writing and that sort of cultural production and what that might mean in the context of this greater um, definition of writing and living as a writer. So my guest today is Ivan Meyerhofer. He is a, a candidate in the PhD program in the Department of Philosophy here at the University of Michigan. And we're going to work our way through um, a little bit of a foundation about um, what philosophy might be and what he does and what it might mean to publish or perish. And eventually we're going to end up in Ghana um, as a way to explore um, philosophy and the writing life. So welcome, Ivan Meyerhofer. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me on, Ashley. It's a real pleasure. And um, a lot of folks are under sort of no conception about what philosophy might mean. They have no idea. And so I wonder if you would just start the show off today by telling us um, what it is that philosophy does as a discipline and um, explain a little bit about what it is that we do here at the University of Michigan and what you're doing in the department, what your dissertation work is about. Okay, so you might think that philosophy is interested in the kinds of questions that the empirical sciences and more empirical disciplines can answer. So one question that, let's see, um, a good question that might come up in this context is, well, a bit contentious, is the nature of morality, right? And stuff like, well, what is right and what's wrong? What are the right things to do? What are the wrong things to do? Um, why do we feel a certain pull towards doing the right things? When I say to other people, you ought to do this or you ought not to do that, morally speaking, um, there's some sort of further claim made that this is something you should, your action should tend towards. Um, and you might think, well, answering these kinds of questions isn't something you can go out in the world and actually look, like investigate, let's say, a killing and understand all of the physical features of that killing. And that's going to tell us, oh, this is obviously a wrong thing. 
um, it's something we actually have to sit back and think about and reflect on the nature of these concepts about morality, what's right, wrong, the concepts of rightness and wrongness, and the concepts of ought, morally speaking. Um, and this kind of reflection and, and reflection and sitting back on it and, and sitting back literally in the armchair um, and trying to understand what these things mean. Now, it's not wholly devoid of the empirical discipline, so I don't want to completely separate it from that, but in a nutshell, that's sort of what we do. And so your project then... Um, for your dissertation has to do with morality and figuring that out? Or is there a smaller subset that we might point to? It's a, it's a smaller subset. I actually primarily work in the areas of language and logic and metaphysics. So I'm very interested in, more broadly speaking, the nature of meaning um, and specifically within the, ling- within the linguistic context. So how do the words we use acquire the meanings that they have? What does it mean for an expression to have a meaning? How can we understand what the nature of meaning is? Um, more Particularly, I like to focus on specific kinds of linguistic construction. So lately, I've been thinking a lot about issues about tense and aspect, um, issues about the past tense, present tense, future tense. Uh, how can we understand these? What's the nature of their meaning? And then aspect, which is a little bit different than text, tense. So the difference between saying something like John ran a mile, where this is something in the past, John, you know, there was a running of a mile yesterday, maybe versus John was running a mile, where this is still in the past tense, but it's not exactly that he finished running the mile, so there's some sort of in-progress event, trying to understand the nature of that. Okay, great. So when a lot of people think about philosophy, they might get to this question of morality, um, but they also think about folks like Heidegger and Wittgenstein, and they, they think <laughs> about they think about the European philosophers. Uh, that's not a lot of what we do here in this department at the University of Michigan. We do this thing called um, analytic philosophy versus continental philosophy. Could you tell us a little bit about the differences between those two and why this sort of emphasis here might yeah. be on analytic? Um, this is a good question. So there's a lot of uproar, you know, a lot of people like to say, well, what we do here is analytic philosophy. It's very different from continental philosophy. And a lot of analytic philosophers get really up in arms against continental philosophers. That's not what we do. Don't even confuse us for them. So in, in some sense, there's actually not a deep difference. Um, a lot of the questions we're interested in and what we want to get at is sort of, you know, you might say this broad similarity among the kinds of questions. The nature of language, like take Derrida, very interested in the nature of language and meaning, and just as most philosophers of language are. Really, the differences you know, might come in if you start looking at the methodology that we take. Um, analytic philosophers are typically, or analytic philosophy is more inclined to be, take as a premise or as a starting point, some sort of lo- logical methodology, and start from trying to understand the phenomenon using methods and tools of logic, critical thinking, very precise critical thinking. Um, whereas if you turn to, let's say, the Of Grammatology by Derrida, right, you wade through hundreds of pages of not exactly the most precise way of putting the points that you want to be making. It's not that there's nothing there to be said, or, I mean, I don't want to say anything about Derrida, but you do have to work really hard to get at exactly what the claims are. Whereas if, you know, if a philosopher is asking the same kinds of questions, an analytic philosopher wants to ask the same kinds of questions, you know, it's very important to get out exactly what we're saying as quickly as possible. And usually the best way to do this is to making your claims as precise as possible, get out the ambiguities as quickly as possible. So we understand what the claim is, what are the arguments for or against it, and then use the methods of logic and rational inquiry to figure out whether or not we ought to believe this or accept these claims. Great. And you've brought an example. Let's let's take an example um, and see what this might mean to kind of get rid of the ambiguity immediately and get straight to okay. precision on so the page. So this is um, 
This is from James Rachel's The Challenge of Cultural Relativism. I thought this was just a good example. This has and, more on the moral context. And before we start, let's just give a little bit of um, cultural relativism, that term. Um, so there's different ways, and, and this will get clear, actually. There are different ways of formulating the position, but it has something to do with people often you know, throw around claims like, well, in such and such culture, it's it's, you know, they accept it as right to perform such an action. Let's so let's say take an example. An example, like an extreme example might be in other cultures they promote or accept or do perform FGM, female genital mutilation. Okay. Which is not something that in our culture, in American culture, we accept, perform, or tend to promote within the society. So someone might, you know, whether or not that's actually the case, that that's, some people have, have made that claim before, and they might come about, about and say, well, look, there's just no fact of the matter about whether it's right or wrong to promote or do or, or perform FGM because some cultures say it's okay and other cultures say it's not okay. And so they just leave it at that, throw up their hands and, and walk away. Um, and this kind of relativizing the rightness or wrongness of actions to different kinds of cultures is typically what's meant by cultural relativism. Okay, great. So let's hear from, the again, the writer. Uh, this is James Rachel's The Challenge of Cultural Relativism, or from it. Um, okay, so it starts off, to many thinkers, this observation, quote, different cultures have different moral codes, unquote, has seemed to be the key to understanding morality. The idea of universal truth and ethics, they say, is a myth. The customs of different societies are all that exist. These customs cannot be said to be correct or incorrect, for that implies we have an independent standard of right and wrong by which they may be judged. But there is no such independent standard. Every standard is culture-bound. So that's sort of setting up the kind of ideas that people are working with when they're trying to bring forth cultural relativism. And then he goes on to make more precise what's going on there so we can actually evaluate those claims. So this is a little bit later in the article, another uh, about a page down. Cultural relativism is a theory about the nature of morality. At first blush, it seems quite plausible. However, like all such theories, it may be evaluated by subjecting it to rational analysis. And when we analyze cultural relativism, we find that it is not so plausible as it first appears to be. The first thing we need to notice is that at the heart of cultural relativism, there is a certain form of argument. The strategy used by cultural relativists is to argue from facts about the differences between, between cultural outlooks to a conclusion about the status of morality. Thus, we are invited to accept this reasoning. Premise 1. The Greeks believed it was wrong to eat the dead, whereas the Kelatians believed it was right to eat the dead. 2. Therefore, eating the dead is neither objectively right nor objectively wrong. It is merely a matter of opinion, which varies from culture to culture. Another example you might think is, um, or alternatively, one, the Eskimos are nothing wrong with, the Eskimos see nothing wrong with infanticide, whereas Americans believe infanticide is immoral. Two, therefore, infanticide is neither objectively right nor objectively wrong. It is merely a matter of opinion, which varies from culture to culture. And Rachel's goes on, clearly these arguments are variations of one fundamental idea. They are both special cases of a more general argument, which says different cultures have different moral codes. And two, conclusion, therefore, there is no objective truth in morality. Right and wrong are only matters of opinion, and opinions vary from culture to culture. And Rachel says, we may call this the cultural differences argument. To many people, it is persuasive, but from a logical point of view, is it sound? So if you notice what he was doing, is he took the different kinds of claims people make. This person, this culture says this particular act is right, and this culture says this particular act is wrong, and people tend to make these claims, and then they go on to conclude, well, there's nothing, there's no objective fact of the matter about whether it's right or wrong, whether that particular act is right or wrong. And he goes from these particular arguments to the more general form of the argument, which is, you know, culture X says that action Y is wrong, whereas culture Z says that action W is right, and therefore there's no objective matter. 
there's no objective fact of the matter about whether or not that action is right or wrong. Um, and then from the more general argument, we can evaluate whether or not that's something we ought to accept. From differences in opinion about whether or not an action is right or wrong, there's a factual difference in the mor- moral status of that action. Now, I want to sort of take on the, the content of the cultural relativism argument there that you've illustrated, used Rachel to illustrate for us in a minute. But first, I want to take on the the tool of writing and how that's working um, in the discipline of philosophy. So as a as a tool, um, is writing being used to um, sort of place this argument such that it can be dealt with? Or can that argument be dealt with um, in a conversation like we're having? Does it does it by necessity need to be on the page? Um, it doesn't need to be on the page. Um, Literally speaking, I guess the way that we approach the writing in this context is if you notice the first thing Rachel wants, Rachel's wants to do is take these kinds of intuitions and common sense arguments that people are making and put them into some sort of logical form. What are the premises and what are the conclusions? And in this sense, the writing becomes somewhat technical because you want to be able to separate out from within the prose. What are the claims that are being used to support other claims? So what are the premises? What are the conclusions? And then when you do that, you begin to see more, well, okay, what exactly what kind of support is being offered by these premises? And this is the way we approach the writing, right? We don't just want to say a bunch of stuff. (laughs) We want to be able to separate out the claims that are supposed to be offering support for other claims. And by doing that, by, by being more precise with the writing, labeling, you know, sometimes going as far as like, well, here are the premises, let me label them, just like lay them out as premises, and here's the conclusion, I'll label it as a conclusion, just lay it out. Um, that helps us get clear on exactly what we're saying, why we're saying it, and how we're going to use our tools of evaluation, right? Because we need to figure out whether or not these premises actually support that conclusion, and unless we get clear on what the premises are, and we can't use those tools to support them. I mean, in, in the kind of writing that I do, or in, in the questions that I'm interested in, it even goes as far as to use a lot of logical form of logical languages, right? So you have various kinds of lo- logical languages, first order logic, central logic, predicate logic, and and you, usually using a lot of set theory too, set theoretic notations to make absolutely precise the claims that we're making, and that we can actually see what kind of predictions follow from the claims we're making. And and when you translate it into logical notation, it actually makes it actually absolutely explicit what's going on. Um, unfortunately, it's hard to read that on air because I'd be reading like box arrow, left, <laughs> right? You know, set membership. And Does it then make it also well. hard to read for anyone who's outside the, the sort of sphere of the questions you're asking? Unfortunately, it does. Um, it can quickly make philosophy seem much more technical and out of the grasp of, of everyday readership than it actually is. Um, I like to think that the logical formula that we use and, and this kind of technical writing we use makes precise intuitions that should be intelligible before they're rigorized. And if they're not intelligible before they're rigorized, um, or if we can't understand what we're saying before we put them into this precise notation, then putting into the precise notation is doing nothing for us. It's just making precise, confused concepts, or I'm speaking loosely here, but we have to know what we're saying before we make it precise. And so although we making it precise kind of detaches us from letting the everyday person, you might say, read and, and understand what we're doing, Hopefully, the person who's doing that can at least come back and represent the material at an intuitive level. Yeah. Great.
Great. Well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ivan Meyerhofer, and we're talking about academic writing specifically within the context of philosophy. We'll be right back. Where are we? What the hell is going on? Dust has only just begun to fall. Crop circles in the carpet, sinking, feeling, spin. Good afternoon. This is The Living Writer Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ivan Meyerhofer, and we're talking about um, his work as an academic writer in the philosophy department and about um, the discipline of writing, writing philosophy and what kind of discipline that means and how that might Im- have implications for writing generally. But before we go back into that, um, let's talk a little bit about the song we were just listening to. Um, as you, is my usual practice, I ask guests to suggest music for the show, and this was one of the songs that you chose by Imogen Heap called Hide and Seek. Um, tell us what, why and what was exciting about it. Um, so my friend actually played the song for me when I was recently in Santa Barbara for his wedding, and he's like, you really have to hear this song, and he played it for me, and I think I listened to it at least 30 times that day, literally, like just with the headphones on nonstop. And um, there was just something really powerful about that song. Um, you know, there's a lot of really great music that comes out that he lets me listen to, and these songs really gri- take a grip on me sometimes, but, you know, they're just poppy, and I like singing the lyrics, or, you know, I have nothing else to do, or I'm trying to not think too much about my writing. Um, but sometimes a song will come along, and it just, just profoundly, like, changes the way you view music. And I feel that this song did that for me. There's just something about the way she was able to pull together the words and and pull together the technology and, and really make it human in some sense, but but really use the vocoder in a way that I had never heard before, which was fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about how the song was made then. You were telling me during the break. Um... Oh, yeah. This is all, you know, from my friend Hearsay and, and from what I was reading on it. But apparently, so she recorded and produced and, and wrote that whole album on her own. And it took her quite some time. This is the album um, Imogen Heap, Speak for Yourself. And but particularly on this song. So if you've heard other songs with vocoders, which is, you know, a process where you run your voice through some sort of synthesizer or module or something. um, Typically, what happens is it just takes the tone of your voice and it kind of morphs it into some sort of robotic or synth sound. But she was able to split the incoming signal so that it was spread out across a MIDI keyboard. So she's actually able to play the keyboard using the tones of her voice coming out. So it's not just one tone coming out that's turned into some sort of synthetic synthesizer sound. It's actually like you get a whole range of of sounds coming out. So when you really listen to the song, 
when she's holding notes for a little bit, you'll hear changes in pitch or changes in chords in the background, and, and it, you really can understand what's going on there. It's really fantastic. Well, that precise sort of orchestration of um, synthesized bits of her voice is, n- sounds to me a little bit analogous to or metaphorical for the process you were using to describe the ways in which analytic philosophy is written. Um, and in this segment of the show, um, we're going to circle back to some of the thematic issues you raised in the piece that you read about cultural relativism um, before the show's over. But in this segment, I want to talk a little bit about this question. Um, it's a question across all disciplines um, for academic writers. Um, the, oh, goodness, he or she is publishing things that are way too popular now. And in the first, um, and it's a bad thing, it's, you know, once you're popular, you must not be a, a rigorous scholar, is the underlying assumption there. And in in the last segment of the show, you, you talked a little bit about the ways in which, in order to write with the kind of precision that is necessary in analytic philosophy, there's a notation system which takes it out of the um, readability for most readers, whether they are academics or otherwise, as yeah. long as if they're not yeah. analytic philosophers. Um, there's a lot of pressure in the academy to publish or perish. You make it by publishing what are you thinking about and what are you finding in your discipline and sort of in general as you're considering um, graduating and getting a job when you think about this question of too popular or um, not rigorously academic enough? You know, that's that's actually an interesting way of putting the question. So, um, you know, a lot of things come to mind when you talk about publish or perish. There's just publishing it all versus not. But then there's this fact that it's not just that you need to publish um, – depending on what kind of job you get or where you want to get hired, the standards for publishing are usually quite high in terms of the kinds of journals they want you publishing in. And let's say you did a lot of publishing in you know, popular philosophy magazines. Not there, there are actually not that many. But say you were doing, you know, I have a friend who wants to publish some articles on philosophy on Slate. You know, he's trying to see Slate. if he can. Slate.com. Slate.com. He's trying mm-hmm. to see if he can do this. Um, let's, he, he's not an academic himself, but let's assume he was. That's not something, let's, and he were able to get this done. That's not something he could come to his, you know, his um, department and say, well, look, I've been publishing on Slate.com. I put some articles out there on philosophy for the general public. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, sure, we're going to hire you. We'll give you a professorship now. You know, they want to see you publishing in academic journals, scholarly journals, and, and for good reason, because the, the methods of, of um, criticism and the standards for these journals are quite high. You know, you submit an article, it's peer-reviewed, blind-reviewed, and um, they really, you know, are, are intensely focused on whether or not the claims are legitimate, your arguments are good and sound. And you might think, well, when you're publishing for a more lay audience, um, the the standards, it's not that the standards are not that high, it's just that there's less of a peer check from within the philosophy community. And that makes some people worried about the legitimacy of the ideas. So it, it scares a lot of people away from, I think that might scare a lot of people away from popularly publishing their philosophical ideas. But, you know, it's not to say that that always has to be the case. If you look at, you know, although he's not directly a philosopher, um, or he might have, I forget exactly his connection with philosophy, but Richard Dawkins' new book, The God Delusion, um, quite popular book, but it's not in any way compromised on the legitimacy of the ideas that are being presented. So it's it's very well written, very good book, but it's quite popular. It has a very wide popular audience. So you might think that these kinds of examples are just not that far out there, but they are out there, and they are things that people should be striving for, especially in philosophy. Philosophy should make more contact with people 
um, in their community, outside of the academic communities. But for some reason, there's just not a lot of popular philosophy writing going on. There should be more of it, though. Well, some of the issues you raised um, when you were sort of giving us the the foundation for this discussion, uh, morality, what's right, what's wrong. I mean, these are questions that are facing people in all kinds of important ways. I mean, from, well, is it okay if I steal cable, you know, and wire it up myself to, well, is it okay if we're over in Iraq, you know, four years later? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So those are questions that are not, that, that, that all people are concerned with. And, um, and I'm wondering sort of how they get translated from the, the rigorous thinkers to the folks who um, are struggling with the same questions, but are not involved in the, in the, same level of rigor that a philosopher would be. You know, unfortunately, I don't know how they get translated. I, mean, I think the unfortunate part here is it's not that people aren't thinking about these questions. Um, you know, obviously, these questions come up all over the place. Look on the news and in, you know, other type of community and cultural context. These kinds of questions come up. I think what really gets lost with when philosophy is not made more accessible to the broader community outside the academic community is that your everyday person lacks the critical abilities to evaluate these questions. Um, so a lot of questions have been coming up lately, let's take about global warming, right? And and about who's responsible for global warming and, and is there global warming and so And um, this is a little bit now outside the philosophy context, but there are precise ways for understanding whether or not global warming is a real issue, how we should interpret the data, how the data relates back to these questions, and exactly what level of responsibility we should take. And there are, you know, there are commonly accepted scientific and philosophical ways of thinking about these kinds of questions that when philosophy isn't exactly made accessible to the everyday person, they might lack these kinds of, these tools of analysis, you might say. And what happens is this makes, don't want to speak too broadly, but this makes people more susceptible to just being told what they should believe and being persuaded and allowing persuasion to guide what they what they believe and what they don't believe instead of allowing their rational faculties to actually step in and and take a hold of of their beliefs and and they can use their own like rational faculties to figure out well is this something that I have to believe uh, you know should I believe that there is global warming and well the evidence is out there and it seems like it supports it or something like this that, that there is and other people are telling me not to believe it because you know they saw that it was warm today and should I take it that it's being warm today? You know, there's actually like good ways of evaluating those claims and, and people should have that. And I think philosophy should take more of a stance of of going out there and and, and bringing these kinds of tools of analysis to to people every day. As someone who's heading into the the career as you know, you'll be graduating in another year or so um, and heading onto the job market, where there's inordinate pressure on um, early career academics to sort of do things the way they were done in the discipline. As someone who's at that stage in your career, do you see room for um, philosophers to bring these tools to the to a broader audience? And do you see room for yourself as a writer, as a philosophical writer, to to do that? If, if I just look starkly at, at what's ahead of me and the kinds of opportunities I might be going into going in the job market and the kinds of jobs that are being offered and the standards that are out there that are required, I don't see much of this of the opportunity for this. Um, one interesting thing, actually, that that is bringing about more of this opportunity is the rise of blogging in philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy blogs out there, and the cool thing about this is that you get a lot of um, you know big name philosophers, graduate students in philosophy, up and coming philosophers, or just everyday people who just happen to run across these blogs, interacting about these questions. And because you have a lot of 
you know, if you, depending on the blog sites that you go to, you have a lot of big name philosophers who are actually really good thinkers. Um, the standards of inquiry are really high. And this is something that's opened up to the general public. So you might think, actually, you know, the blogging, the blogosphere is, is one venue for bringing these ideas are to the public. Are there a couple of Although, blog sites that you recommend? Um, I usually go to Thoughts, Arguments, and Rants. It's a blog run by Brian Weatherson. And there's actually a blog that's just started up um, by the graduate students here at the University of Michigan under Go Gru. I think go. that's Go Go Gru. Gru is this. How do you spell Gru? G R U E. Okay. Go Gru. Might Gru-, be go Gru at WordPress.com. Mm-hmm. You might want to check that out. That's a good one. Um, so the blogosphere is is a good venue for this. Although you know, in terms of tenure requirements and making success in your academic career. Again, you can't go to your department and say, well, look, I've been blogging a lot lately. You know, give me tenure now. Give me they're, tenure. Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to do it. But, um, but you would hope that there would be more than this, too. I mean, the blogging community is, is, is a really great pr- place to get these ideas out. But you would hope there would be more interaction with what I would like to see is more interaction with high schools and, and junior high, stuff like this, where you can actually teach logic and philosophy in terms of its critical approach to thinking and critical tools of analysis really early on and and students really take a hold on to this but you just don't see a lot of that and you don't see a lot of pressure for having like so i did my undergraduate undergraduate career at ucsd um university of california san diego and there's actually much more interaction between professors and the local high school communities there at least when i was there they were pushing a lot of that and um it would be good to see a lot more of that across across the united states you know much more interaction between universities and local schools local tutoring centers or something like this. I've heard a little bit of buzz about a program that may be starting up between the University of Michigan and the neutral zone. Is that something here in Ann Arbor? Is that something that you're involved with? Uh, there was, th- that was starting up for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some sort of Socrates is uh, taking off on this broader idea of a Socrates cafe, um, kind of have people sit around and talk about philosophy and actually trying to get high schoolers really interested in these questions really on so that they can see, wow, interesting questions. And there's like really rigorous ways of thinking about it. It's not just, you know, what do you believe? What do I believe? Oh, let's go home today. You know, there's actually like, oh, what I believe might be wrong and I want to figure out whether or not it's right or wrong and whether or not I should accept it. So yeah, there is something starting up there and and we'll see where that goes. See where that goes. So the neutral zone um, here in downtown Ann Arbor caters to local youth groups um, and youth of the county, high school students. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break. It's the top of the hour, and you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ivan Meyerhofer, and we'll be right back. Time as I've known it doesn't take much time to pass by me Minutes into days turn into months Turn into years, they hurry by me But still I love to see the sun go down And the world go round Dreams full of promises Hopes for the future, I've had many Dreams I can't remember now Hopes that I've forgotten 
Good afternoon. We're back, and you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ivan Meyerhofer. We're talking about academic writing, philosophy, and uh, a whole host of big questions. Yeah. <laughs> big questions. So in the last section of the show, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, I'd like to leave the U.S. and talk a little bit about <laughs> Ghana um, and West Africa. And um, to frame that, um, I'd like to circle back to these questions of morality and right and wrong. Um, we've been throwing around a lot of we, as in we should think about this question, we should think about that, we can think about that. There are more rigorous ways we can do X, Y, and Z. And um, this issue of cultural relativism. And power um, probably goes into that equation somewhere. Um, you are in all likelihood headed to Ghana shortly. You have been um, in Ghana before teaching philosophy. And I wonder if you tell us a little bit about how and whether these questions of morality and of philosophy as a discipline and of philosophical writing um, are different or more or less pressing um, in the Ghanaian context and in the context outside um, the University of Michigan, let's say, just to narrow things down a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I should say, when I was there before, I wasn't teaching. Right? Okay. I was there as an undergrad, and I was taking a lot of courses studying under various professors there. I do hope to go back, or I will be going back come December, and um, and we'll be doing some teaching, hopefully, at the University of Ghana, Legon, in the philosophy department. Um, but to get back to this question of, of the relationship between philosophy and, let's say, Ghanaian culture... Um, let me think about let me let me talk about this outside of the morality context because it might be a little bit easier stickier. to understand this, but um, <laughs> less stickier. Uh, although, so when I was there, I was studying with a professor who's really interested in questions about tradition and modernity. Uh, so there's a lot of development going on in Ghana at the moment uh, across the board, um, socio sociological, economic, political, and development in the cultural spheres as well. And so I I can't testify to exactly what the development is. This is just coming from from what I was studying with him. But, you know, certain questions that he's interested in has a lot to do with, well, should we hold on to our traditional beliefs and our traditional heritages? And if we shouldn't accept them, should we just drop them wholesale for, you know, more modern beliefs? What exactly are modern beliefs? I don't know. But there's some sense in which, well, there's a way we've been doing things and there's the things we've we have been believing. There's all this new stuff coming in what of the old stuff should we keep, if any? And should we just drop it wholesale? Maybe part of it we should keep, part of it we shouldn't. And if only parts of it we should keep, well, how are we going to judge? Like, what principles are we going to use to divide among all of our traditional beliefs, the ones we should accept and the ones we shouldn't accept? And um, so these kinds of questions are, you might think, ripe for a philosopher to come in and, and to do some analysis in terms of, well, what roles should traditional beliefs play in our everyday lives or trying to understand the relationship between them, their identity and their traditional beliefs and how their identity might be constructed out of those beliefs. And if they can or should drop some of their traditional beliefs in light of more modern systems of belief or practices, how that might affect their identity. And uh, I think specifically like getting into the nitty gritty, you know, one way you're going to answer a lot of these questions is specifically understanding what the contents of those beliefs are. So I'm really interested in the ancestors and the role of the ancestors in Ghanaian belief systems. I haven't done too much work on this, but I'm getting more involved in it now. And you might wonder whether or not the ancestors play are like a typical subclass of those beliefs that in some sense isn't 
consistent with more modern ways, scientific ways of thinking about things. And if they are or not, exactly understanding whether or not they are or not, you would need to go in and understand, well, what are the contents of those beliefs? You can't just say, well, that's an ancestor, this is not an ancestor. They're actually saying something and, and understanding what they're saying or what they're believing will give you a better idea of whether or not they're compatible with more modern ways of thinking or something like this. Well, in 1992, I believe it was, um, Kwame Anthony Appiah published a book called In My Father's House. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, wonderful book. I actually read it in the context of anthropology, so it's, it's crossing disciplinary boundaries. Um, and he's a, a philosopher at, at Princeton now, um, born of Ghanaian parents, I believe, in London. Um, and in this book, he explores, explores the role of um, African and African-American intellectuals in shaping contemporary African cultural life, which sort of gets at some of these questions that you are thinking about. Um, to what degree do you believe that philosophy and intellectuals and um, stuff that is produced on the page in academic settings really does play a role in this question of, um, well, traditional versus modern? Or do people just do what they do? Or do scholars actually um, shape what it is that we do? You know, okay, that's a hard question to answer. I, I definitely think that we are shaping you know, not just in this context, but even when we're asking the same kinds of philosophical questions here, you might just ask, well, what, what import or what importance is what the philosophers are doing? You know, is it really getting out there to the people? Or are you just kind of spinning wheels amongst yourselves and you go home at night and that's all there is to it? Here in the tower. Um, but it is actually, there's a sense in which in the Ghanaian context or in, in these other contexts that there actually is some important role for these intellectuals to play. And, um, a lot of it just depends on how much the the material is broadcasted, right? And how how hard they, how much they spend, how much hard time they spend getting their thoughts out there to the people, either by way of literature, by way of public speaking, or in the classrooms, right? Through teaching, running their courses. A lot of my interest in these subjects came up in the context of an African philosophy course that I took with one of these professors. And, and some of the most lively debates that I had were among myself and the other students, or were, were with the other students. And these questions came up in the context of the classroom, but they left the classroom and quickly spread, you know, in, into our dorm rooms and and in, in the bars at night, or whatever, and stay up all night talking about these questions. And so in some sense, you know, as long as we're teaching and trying to make an effort to get our material out there, I can see it having an effect. But, you know, the more distance we keep between ourselves as academics versus, you know, and the people we're trying to the people whose lives has some effect or is affected by what we think about and the conclusions we come up with, the more distance we keep between ourselves, uh, the less it becomes clear how exactly our thinking is going to be relevant to them. Um, but there definitely is something important that we're doing. Uh, it's well, yeah. One of the things that I've noticed about um, I, I, my, my background is a little more, more in Latin America than in Africa. So one of the things I've noticed in, with respect to Latin American intellectuals is that they're often wearing multiple hats that we don't wear here in the U.S. So, for example, on Friday, Gilberto Gil, the Minister of Culture of Brazil, was here at Hill Auditorium playing his music, which is what he was known for prior to being the Minister of Culture of Brazil, um, very influential in the Tropicalia movement and therefore in world beat music generally. Um, and a lot of an Latin American intellectuals wear the hat of um, writer of literature, uh, political leader, scientist. It's not unusual for the same person to wear that hat, which is part of how the ideas end up spreading through out the 
country or the area more so than we find here where academics and increasingly literary writers are housed in and stay in um, the ivory tower yeah, yeah. Um, is that similar to what's happening in, in ghana and in um, sort of west africa that may be a part of what um, apia is talking about and what what you're referring to in the sort of it moves out of the classroom and into the bars and into the other contexts or is there something very different going on in uh, africa and in ghana specifically you know, with the, with the professors I was working with there, and the people I were I was talking with, and that I am talking with now, they're they are more academics, um, so they're not also wearing the hat of a writer or something like this. And I don't know. I guess there are other ways to get the ideas out there than to be, let's say, also a writer as well as uh, an academic. You could, you know, in terms of a fiction writer, let's say. Um, so again, stepping out of the African context for a second, there there are some philosophers actually who do publish in more popular presses. So I know Jerry Fodor does a lot of reviews of philosophy books in, I think it's the London Review of Books. And um, his writing is always very fun to read and, and actually gets across a lot of great ideas. So in that sense, he's wearing the hat of a writer, but not a fiction writer, just more of like an everyday writer. Um, I'd be very wary of, of trying to press more academics to become fiction writers because usually that just makes for either bad fiction or <laughs> bad, <laughs> bad philosophy. philosophy. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some good examples of that. And Rand for one. Who is <laughs> a Bible for so many folks yeah. sort of coming into high school and into college and Rand becomes, um, a guide for a lot of, um, very strongly held thinking on the part of a lot of, um, folks in our audience potentially. Yeah, but yeah. So some people can spread themselves across the philosophy and 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 the fiction and and actually do well in both. But I think this is a good example of where it doesn't work. Doesn't work so well. Yeah. <laughs> um, great. So um, we're getting close to um, wrapping up the show for today, and um, I wonder if you will kind of circle back to the beginning um, and tell us how. Um, you're going to, you're headed off to work on your dissertation in analytic philosophy. Um, you're looking at language and aspect and the ways in which the logic of language are, are shaping um, our belief systems. Um, how are you going to sort of pour Africa into that and then come back here and... Uh, you know, for me, going back to Ghana, what, what, what's really important there is um, a couple of things. One, there's just a need for teachers, right? And so I have some abilities that I can actually make use of in an everyday, on an everyday level. And, and that's my teaching abilities and that I can go out there and, and actually promote education and, and teach students through philosophical inquiry, which I think is a great way of teaching students how to think. And, um, and I just know that, you know, at the university there, that actually like a need of university teachers. So, um, I can go there and volunteer my services in that way. And, and I'm actually really excited by that. And I think education in Ghana is, is something that, requires a lot more attention to if you look at you know if you just look at the news and what's going on there there's definitely a lot more attention that needs to be paid to the educational system there and um, if I can go and help out in that way that's great and another thing that I'm I'm really interested in this is more of the experimental side is is actually trying to figure out if there is something that I can learn there that will affect the way I do philosophy I have a hunch that there is that that not only will I be able to contribute to their philosophical life, but what's going on there, philosophically speaking, will contribute directly to my philosophical life, to the way I think and approach ideas. 
Um, but until I go there, I don't know how what that's going to be. But it's just a hunch that I have at the moment that I need to act on. Um, there's just not going to be a direct connection back to my dissertation. But this is really thinking in the long term. You know, this is just the beginning of a long life of philosophical thinking, and I need to plant those seeds early. So going there and figuring out if it's going to affect it is really important. Wonderful. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up for the day. The sports report's about to come on. <laughs> but I'd like to thank you very much for being my guest today. Um, I've been Meyer yeah. Hoffer. Thank you. Thanks. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and Chaz Barrett for doing such a wonderful job engineering the show. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Next week, Rachel Harkai will be back. Archives are available on iTunes. If you do a search for Living Writers Show, you can download the show. Stay tuned. The Sports Report is next. The Daily Sports Report. Michigan with the ball at the Michigan State 21-yard line. Three wide receivers, two far, one near. Henny under center. He'll drop back to pass. 